Hi, Scott. It's uh, Simon Carley here from St. Emlyn's podcast and blog site. I'm so delighted. I'm absolutely delighted to be the first person to get a smack back from you. I feel totally honoured because it must be a marvellous thing to have. I, I presume it is a good thing. It is a good thing? It, apparently it is a good thing. So that's brilliant. Seriously, though, I would have loved to have had you in the audience for the uh, talk about uh, what to believe and when to change. It, you would have enjoyed it. It would have been great fun to have you there and we could have had a great chat on the day. But... We couldn't do that. Um, you were busy. And the great thing about Smack is we can catch up on those talks now. And I'm having a, I'm having a great time looking at the talks I actually went to because I'm picking up stuff which I've not seen on the day. And I'm also seeing talks which I never saw. And I've heard some fantastic stuff from Smack. I'm really enjoying it. Great work. But OK, let's get back to the Smack. Back, 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 back. Smack back. I don't know. Uh, smack back, back. Anyway, I was listening to the week. I really enjoyed it. It was really good fun. Um, and I was struck arguably by how much we agreed on, to be honest. So let's, let's go through a couple of those things. What do we agree on? The first thing, I think we've got to agree there are potentially dangers in being an early adopter. I would say being an early adopter in general, you would say being a bad early adopter. Well, kind of they're the same sort of thing. So there are potentially dangers in being an early adopter and there are dangers in being a late adopter. I don't think we'd we pretty much disagree about any of that. Other things, I think we love dogmalysis. I think we love it when new evidence comes along and it changes our practice. I've seen so many of your blogs and podcasts that say that that is something you absolutely adore. And you're right, I'm a bit of an early adopter. We lean, we both lean to the left of the adoption curve. We love innovation. We love early adoption. It makes us happy. And we get a bit frustrated with the laggards out there. And I think we also agree that we love in linking high quality evidence to real patient focused outcomes. But of those, I think numbers one and two are the most interesting. And I think they're pretty much self-evident that either being an early adopter or late adopter has potential harms. There's lots of evidence to show that, that if they're rigidly applied as an approach, you can run into trouble. But my whole talk really was premised around the fact that that's the case, that if you rigidly apply either of those, the nature of changing medical evidence means that you'll come to, come to grief if you take any of those approaches to the nth degree. So... What else was said in there? What else can uh, we pick up on? Right. The adage of never be the first to change or never be the, the last to change. The old attendings thing. I think I agree with that, but I think it's a little bit oversimplistic on what I was trying to say. And it's a little bit of a dichotomy of reason. And we'll think about that as we go through. But let's let's talk about some of the issues we talked about. So Fleck and I. Fleck and I was an interesting one. The story of Fleck and I is really interesting. There's some great papers out there. But it does show that if you early adopt, you can potentially do harm. And I think it's really interesting because I think I probably would have taken Fleck and I on because it demonstrated to me, or it would have demonstrated to me back in the 80s, that I could reduce the number of ventricular dyspneas in my post-MI patients. And I would have thought that's a fairly good clinical outcome. It turned out to be wrong. And I think that's just the nature of medical evidence. But I'm struggling to reconcile your, your, your views on that with your advocacy of epinephrine dosing in cardiac arrest. And in the, in the weed that you did with Rob McSweeney, which is a great um, little podcast on the site, that really demonstrates that we're taking an, an adaptation of process, an adaptation of dosing, an adaptation of how we use adrenaline, but without patient-orientated outcomes. And, and we freely admit that. Now, I'm okay with that. I don't think that's a problem, but it's kind of using the same standards as we had when we were adopting flecainide back in the 80s. We could also go on and talk about the vasopressin steroids and epinephrine trials that have come out of Greece. Now, yes, those are randomized controlled trials, but I'm not sure that they're going to hit the guidelines as yet. Interestingly, it's only single center work, and some of the size of treatment effects in those trials gives me some concern, and I think those are shared by quite a lot of people around the world. Whether they'll hit the guidelines is interesting. If we change practice now without guideline support, it's going to lead to a little bit of variation and potentially chaos. So, I think we're not quite there with VSE yet. 
let's wait and see, and let's see what Ilkor comes out with. It wouldn't surprise me at all if future trials overturn this, and we see that overturning of evidence on many, many occasions in clinical practice. And the literature is, is full of trials which are reversed. There was a great paper in the Mayo Clinical Proceedings in 2013 by Prasad et al., which shows that small trials which have large treatment effects are commonly reversed. And I think that's what we're going to see in VSC. We might not. It might be the next big thing. But it's just got the characteristics of something which I think we'll see reverse with. So my, my take is I'm, I'm waiting for this. I'm going to see how we go and see if we can reproduce that evidence in a different centre with a greater number of patients before we actually move and before we actually see it in the guidelines. So what about being wrong? You do say that you've, you've never had to go back and um, adjust a podcast, and that's awesome. I, I'm not that good. I've had to go back and adjust a few. And I'm wrong quite a lot. And over the years, I've done all sorts of crazy things, uh, which in retrospect now probably harm patients. So things like steroids in spinal cord injury. I've used starch solutions in sepsis and trauma. I've used crystalloid boluses in trauma. I've used protein C in sepsis. And we now know that many of those therapies cause harm. And so I guess it's, it, it's possible never to be wrong. I... I how do we get it so that we're never, ever wrong? I don't think it's possible. And we like dogmalysis. And we can't have dogmalysis unless we have new evidence which destroys old knowledge. And if the old knowledge was the best knowledge available at the time, that's probably what we were doing. So dogmalysis, change in medicine requires and embraces the destruction of um, previous evidence. And as a consequence, we have to accept that we probably did harm with our previous therapies. And in fact, I'd argue that as early adopters, and I think, you know, the better clinicians are on that side of the curve, um, to be a great clinician, you'll be adopting therapies at a point where harm is probably inevitable from some of them. And I can't honestly say that I've never delivered a therapy which subsequently hasn't proved to be harmful. So I think it's just a nature of the beast, the world that we live in, that harm is potentially going to take place. But what about anti-innovation early adoption? I'm not an anti-innovator. I think you've argued quite strongly against one side of my argument, but I'm actually equally cautious about both sides. Early adoption, late adoption, middle adoption, they all have their risks and benefits. And getting the Goldilocks moment when the perfect time to change occurs is really something which is very difficult to measure unless you do it in retrospect. But that's not what we have to do. And that's why I find this so fascinating. That's why I find it such a complex environment. But, you know, I'm no more anti-adoption than I'm anti-laggard. And I merely draw attention to the risks of both. If you're an early adopter, you've got the potential to harm people. If you're a late adopter, you've almost certainly got the potential to harm people. And that's a problem. So, is it better to be early or late? Well, you've pretty much convinced me that early adoption has many advantages. If we think about um, techniques such as congenital heart disease surgery, without early adopters, we wouldn't progress. But also, at that extreme example, without early adopters potentially delivering harm to people in those early phases of product development, in terms of technique development, in terms of drug development, then it will be very, very difficult to be in the situation where we are now. And I think that does put an onus on people who do early adopt to be very careful about what they do. And I think you put, bring this out really, really well in that it's not something for amateurs and it's not something to just early adopt without a good foundation of knowledge and understanding about what you're doing. I would agree with that, but it does mean that not everybody can be in that part of the curve. And arguably, we can't all be in that part of the curve for everything. There'll be areas of my practice where I'd be comfortable to innovate because I do have a great knowledge and a good understanding of the pathophysiology of what I'm doing. But there'll be other areas where perhaps it is more appropriate for me to be towards the right-hand side of the curve and to be a late majority or even an, well, ideally an early majority adopter. Now, in the lecture, we talk about when 
to change and why to change and give some clues about what you should be doing. But I thought was really interesting, and I must agree with you completely, is when you consider change, you have to know what your current practice is based upon. And I think we both say this really quite strongly, and it's really important. It's something about being a senior clinician and not jumping too early when you're, when you're, when you're new to the specialty. In order to move your position on anything, you've got to be pretty sure about where you're standing and how good the foundations of your evidence are from where your current position is. And we definitely say this in the lecture, and we completely agree with that. It's only if you truly understand what you're doing now that you can make an informed decision about change. And what about that change? What about the grief and the change? I used TTM in the talk because it was current. It was, it was right there happening in Australia at that time. And I used it because it, it had generated an emotional response to change. If you look back at the Twitter lines, your Twitter lines, my Twitter lines at the time, there were loads of comments about, oh my God, the world has changed. You're right. To be honest, it hadn't. This was a good trial, an excellent trial, which demonstrated to me that fever avoidance was probably the most important thing. But it was fascinating. It was really fascinating to listen to people argue that the previous evidence was really, really strong. There were even people who suggested we should continue cooling for people with asystole at the time. But I think they've moved on from that now. And whilst we might argue that we were only really interested in the fever prevention, lots of people were interested in hypothermia for the concept around suspended animation. And it was really interesting how people changed their views. So they, when the TTM trial came in, they said, oh, well, it was all about the, it was all about the fever prevention. But I had conversations with people who were arguing that hypothermia was much more beneficial in different ways. And that's a good evidence to me of how people change their knowledge, change their understanding and change their memory of what they believed in the past. And there's loads of evidence that people do that. We're very, very poor at being consistent in our views in general. Some of us are better than others, admittedly. So that really tells me a couple of things. Firstly, that people don't always understand the level of evidence which currently underpins their practice. And secondly, that when new evidence comes along, it can create a rather emotional response in us, and not always a terribly rational one. And so that takes us on to ophthalmology, Mrs. Carley, and the late adoption or early adoption of medical technologies. She is indeed an early majority adopter, and that's absolutely the right place to be. But it's interesting speaking to people in the craft specialties. Their experience with technologies, with techniques and new devices is probably quite different to ours. There's certainly been some major concerns around plastic surgery, orthopaedic surgery and ophthalmological surgery. And her experiences of dealing with other people's errors or other people's early adoption errors has been really quite profound. And so I think that has influenced my thinking and has certainly got me thinking about trials like that Glidescope trial we talk about in the lecture where they demonstrated harm coming from the adoption in a randomised controlled trial of a new device. Now, it's not a great trial, and we do say that on the Stemlins blog, but it was really interesting that we had an RCT of a device, and we don't have enough of those. There are far too few trials like that. And all I ask is that we adopt the same principles and the same standards for the adoption of technology as we do other therapies that we use in our clinical practice. On a personal note, She's a bit of a late adopter. It took me 10 years to get married, um, but it was a really great decision. Actually, as a late adopting decision, it was a really, really good one, and she's marvellous. So finally, I think we agree about a lot of things. I think you presented one side of an argument back, and that's because I chose to use you as a, as a, as a pinnacle of great innovation, and I love you for that. It's fabulous work that you do. But the abbreviated version of the lecture, was it really to say that you should never be the first or the last? I don't think so. I would stand by my summary on the day. The final slide was from Maya Angelou. 
And what that said is something which I think we could both really agree on. What she said was that you should do absolutely the best you can until you reach a point when you know better. And then when you know better, you do better. We must agree on that. Scott, it's been great talking to you. Really looking forward to seeing you in Chicago. Have fun. I'll see you soon.